Alright everybody, welcome to the December 8th edition of Cascadian Views. It's a short crew this week, just me and Chris. How you doing? I'm alright, how are you? I'm doing okay. Um, Dan is the one of us with an actual life, and then uh, the Timbers made the MLS Cup, so JJ is uh, busy watching <laughs> that. Um, we had a, a fairly momentous week this week. Um, some long-awaited documents dropped from Mueller's office. The first was on Tuesday when there was a extremely heavily redacted uh, sentencing memo and accompanying, I guess, uh, appendix memo to it, both about six pages, uh, with somewhere around a grand total of half a paragraph that wasn't redacted. <laughs> it's actually readable, yeah. yeah. Um, on the heels of that, on Friday, dropped the largely unredacted, uh, at least compared to the previous sentencing memos, uh, in both Cohen's case and Manafort's case, um, this was kind of where we got, got a little bit of the dirt on where Manafort went wrong in his plea agreement and whatnot, although there is still a lot behind the curtain on that. And then Saturday, uh, the transcript of the Comey testimony in front of the, uh, I think it's the House Judiciary Committee, uh, came out. And, well, they uh, they spent a lot of time asking about Hillary Clinton's emails. Of course. Which, so you can kind of see where their priority lies in the whole thing. So uh, I, I guess with all that laid out, Chris, what did we learn this week? Well, let's see. Um, I think we learned a couple of things. One is, I feel like in how heavily redacted the memo for Flynn was, we learned how much investigation is still live out there. And that he's... There's apparently an investigation so secret they can't tell us about it. They tell us about two, two different investigations that he helped, but say he helped thir uh, three... And the third one is so sensitive, they even redacted the, the section header, so we don't even know what it entails. Yeah. Yeah, so the second one was the one that was a federal investigation into, and then it was blank. <laughs> the third one is just a block. They're, they're holding a lot of things really close to their chest with this. Uh, kind of what you'd imagine they would do. They were in uncharted territory about going after a president. Yeah, and there's certainly, I mean, so one thing that's clear is that the Flynn memo talks specifically about, you know, that he was very helpful with contacts with Russia. The Cohen memo talks about a previously undisclosed contact with Russia. And then the Manafort memo talks about basically him lying <laughs> about contacts with Russia. Going so, back to 2015 at the earliest. For the Cohen one, yeah, yeah. The, I mean, that sounds to all the world like an intelligence operation. You're grooming somebody for an office you want them to run for. Yeah, what really struck me about that is that that's a, at least four independent outreaches we know of by someone representing Russia to someone involved with the Trump campaign. At one point in the Cohen memo, he turns down... A, a Putin insider because they already have another Putin insider who like made themselves available to them. Yeah, yeah, he was worried about scuttling the uh, Trump Tower Moscow negotiations. So 
He didn't want to spend time with the other person. They're literally tripping over Russian agents. Like, <laughs> oh my God. How are you not in the middle of that thinking something might be wrong here? So, I mean, of the several things we know, right? We know, I think we know that um, this was going on. We already knew that, but now we have several points established. And the timeline of these points is such that you could just look at the history of, you know, everyone in the Trump campaign in like summer 2016 saying, we don't have any business with Russia. We've never had any meetings with Russia. We don't even know where Russia is. Like, there's no way to regard that as anything but a bald-faced knowing lie at this point. And it's it's kind of disheartening that it feels like, you know, 35, 40% of the country is just cool with that. Yeah. Yeah, that one is still baffling to me. I, I sort of can't understand what people... Like, are there people who literally think that any reported piece of news is not true? <laughs> and that's the only way that they've avoided? <laughs> I was uh, I was watching NBC News this weekend. I don't often watch cable, but I was at a place that had it. Um, and there, there was a, a talking head on a network, and I apologize because I don't remember who it is, but uh, made the point that the Constitution does not, you know, enforce itself. It's not like it flaps its, its little parchment wings and flies out of the National Archives and, and smacks you when you try and do something bad. Like, it depends on people holding people accountable to that, people in power, holding other people in power accountable to that, and to some extent the, the people in power desire themselves to hold themselves accountable to it. Um, and I, I think we're, we're kind of seeing that. Uh, the Republican Party, at least in the, the Senate, um, and I would say in the House too, but there's fewer of them. They hold a majority in the Senate so they could actually do something. Um, are, are just seemingly okay with it in exchange for power. Yeah, that has been extremely disheartening. I, and Yeah, it, it makes me feel the moral fiber on that side of the aisle is not where it should be and i hate to make generalizations about that but when you at, at what what have they done to stand up for this jeff flake tweets something you know that he's sad about every now and then that that's it mm -hmm. that that's really the extent that they're willing to do something about it and this is the same group of people let's keep in mind who didn't really disclaim when they had associates saying that Hillary should be executed for having an improperly secured email server. Mike Flynn, a gentleman who, uh, you know, just had his sentencing memo released this week, was one of those people who literally yelled, lock her up with the crowd. And he's a criminal. Uh, the other big bombshell in this is that uh, they directly implicated the president in saying that uh, Cohen acted at his direction. Um, it was pointed out by a number of federal prosecutors that they actually have to give the judge a complete picture of the information. They, they, they're not allowed to like say something's a slam dunk or whatnot in there. They always have to uh, be mindful and they have to list any contradicting information. There's none attached to that. It's a statement of fact 
that Cohen did this at the direction of the president, that means they have hard evidence. They, Cohen was known for taping things. This might be one of them. Yeah, I mean, they pulled up an ungodly, in that raid on him, they yeah. pulled up an ungodly amount of documents and cell phones and computers. And if they're confident they have information, I think we can be confident that they have information as well. It was, yeah, it was uncouched. There was no no contradicting fact presented, no other way to interpret it, just that Cohen did these crimes at the direction of Individual 1. Individual 1 is uh, continuing their pattern, not named the president, but described as somebody who was later elected president in this document, <laughs> something that they have used before to avoid naming Individual 1 as Trump. Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of a silly fiction at this point, but I guess, I mean, aside from what a bombshell it is and wanting to soft-pedal it for that reason, I think there's also, from my understanding, there's kind of a standard practice for someone that you haven't moved on to legal action against yet, not disclosing their name until you're ready to do that. The, um, the filings do indicate that this, is nowhere near done. There's There's been a resurgence of the media chatter that Mueller is about to wrap it up. Um, I, I believe this media chatter is mostly among congressional Republican staffers. Um, desperately hoping it's true. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, it's come up a couple times before. Um, it was again brought up this last couple weeks or so. These, these filings seem to indicate that it's not anywhere close. I, I mean, it's new investigations that we don't even know about are, are coming up. Comey touched on this in his testimony, which we'll, we'll cover in more detail here in a little bit, but uh, he was asked whether or not Mueller's firing would have any impact on investigations into it, and he, he bluntly said no. In, in fact, he said you'd probably have to fire almost everybody at the FBI at this point to shut down all the uh, and I, I, these filings really do back that up. Yeah, I think all of these filings have some kind of reference to other investigations. The Southern District of New York, York is a big one. Yeah. Which is a, a little bit strange because I believe that that is... Uh, that's the same area that the the FBI field office that is a notorious hotbed of, of conservative uh, legal opinion is located in, but it's typically a, a fairly left-leaning uh, U.S. attorney seat. Yeah, so I've been, um, I highlighted something on the, uh, you know, as I was posting excerpts last night that I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on, which is, the Southern District of New York obviously does not like Cohen. They have good reasons that they've laid out in their filing for not doing so. Um, but I was curious about how little leniency, really, Mueller's filing on sentencing seemed to push for. Yeah. Um, I. It stands in pretty stark contrast with what he did with Flynn. Um, Flynn got basically a free pass. Mueller didn't even recommend a prison term. He thought six months of probation ought to just about do it. Yeah. Uh, which is incredible, frankly. And he 
specifically called out a lot that Flynn did, including coming clean almost immediately after it was clear he was in trouble, cooperating fully and, and making a kind of a an honest public show out of it, conducting himself in a way that Mueller appreciated but wasn't phony or he, he just he shut up basically he shut up he went through the motions he said the right things he appeared contrite Mueller calls him out as an example for others you know this was an example that others could follow Cohen had a very prolonged process in all this where he while he did cooperate he never entered into any sort of plea deal he was constantly kind of will he won't he on this he only really tried to cop any sort of deal when it was clear that Trump wasn't going to pardon him. There was a, a, a note of charade, I think, about Cohen's whole process to follow. And I, I think that is something that uh, that stands out, and I think that's why you see the, the difference in this. Cohen isn't, uh, maybe, I don't want to say fundamentally decent, but Cohen isn't... A normal person who fucked up and when it was clear they were caught tried to make it. he tried to continue on and it was only after he was cornered that he did yeah. and I think that's a big difference between him and yes reflects in their their sentences Owen didn't set an example for others he faked it until he couldn't and then he kind of bit the bullet Yeah, I think that makes sense. I just, you know, I find myself wondering what it kind of says about the quality of information that they did or didn't get from him on the on the Mueller side. Um, God, this is one of those things I wish we had Dan here for. He, uh, he is the legal beagle. I'm, I'm not real sure we can read into that. Uh, they are separate cases, and this sort of prosecutor's discretion stuff, I'm, I'm not real familiar with why they choose what they choose so I, I, I don't really know if I can suss that out so we might want to talk briefly about um, speaking of people who did not cooperate well with the federal prosecutors they were supposed to be cooperating with <laughs> the whole situation with Manafort yeah that was the other filing he apparently lied repeatedly including about Russian contact uh, and then a whole lot of stuff about foreign lobbying. He also was communicating with the Trump, Trump White House as recently as earlier this year. Uh, I'd say last spring, but yes, February is kind of right on that edge there. Uh, but yeah, February 2018, as recently as that, uh, Manafort was communicating with the Trump White House. And he also, I, I guess, was, you know backdooring all the stuff he talked about with Mueller to the Trump team, uh, which is, I guess, covered in the further secret Manafort sentencing memo that Mueller also filed. There was two memos in that case. One was public, one was entirely sealed, uh, not even released in a redacted form. And he makes some overt suggestions that that sort of juicy stuff is in the, the other memo. Right, right. So uh, I, I really hope we see that sooner rather than later. Uh, I hope that's not one of those things that we learn from a history book in like 20 years, because that is almost surely one of the most important documents in American history at this moment. 
It'll be superseded by some further documents, I'm sure, but at this moment, that one's pretty important. I really want to know what they got Manafort plotting here. And I, I think a lot of this backdooring stuff to Trump sets up a... Depending on what they did with it, possibly sets up the easiest obstruction of justice case in this whole thing. Beyond even the, the Comey firing, I think that one would be a much easier yeah, right. The specifics of who he was talking to in the administration, what kinds of things he was talking to them about. Yeah, and what the planning was, what they were actually using that information for. Yeah. Uh, you know, obstruction has... there's There has to be an intent here, uh, a, a criminal intent. And really, as easy as it is for me or you to look at this and be like, there's no way that they were up to no good, or that they weren't up to no good with that information. In a courtroom, it has to be a little bit different, and I understand that. But yeah, depending on what Trump was using that information, or the Trump organization was using that information for from Manafort, I think could be the easiest crime Mueller could have possibly stumbled into. <laughs> Yeah, and and in either direction, right? I mean, obviously, the most kind of the most horribly damaging thing you could imagine is if they were deliberately feeding Mueller false information through Manafort. Oh God, yeah, because <laughs> that but, adds a whole bevy of other crimes on top of it. <laughs> but even on the flip side, if it was just Manafort coming to them and saying, "This is what we're talking about. These are the kinds of things he's asking about." Yeah, if the president then acts on that information in an attempt to impede the investigation or hamper it, that is textbook obstruction of justice. That That is the definition of that crime. Right. Uh, so, yeah, I think I think there's a lot of juicy stuff in the Manafort uh, memo, specifically the one that we didn't get to see. Uh, the kind of stuff that's going to make a great Woodward and Bernstein book in like four years. <laughs> so, so kind of continuing the tradition of it's sort of weird media outlets that have picked up on a lot of this stuff. I think I read in Vice today <laughs> an article um, basically running down the idea that by putting these, by putting this information in sentencing memos, Mueller is putting it in the hands of judges. And then those judges can then have it subpoenaed by Congress. Those judges even have wide leeway over when and if they think it's appropriate to release it. So it kind yeah, of they could unseal those at their own discretion. It moves a whole bunch of this information into a realm where even a person in the Justice Department determined to shut down that investigation can no longer shut down that body of information. There that does dovetail a lot with a, another story that's gone around a few times about how Mueller is specifically laying out his memos in extraordinary detail that you don't normally see in order to, uh, I guess, kind of leave the breadcrumbs of his final report in case the Justice Department quashes his final report, uh, right. doesn't publish it. I, I think those two ideas complement each other in a certain way. And there is... Um, also a historical precedent with somebody that Mueller has in, in the past specifically said he admires for this specific act. Um, let me pull up his name here uh, real quick. But uh, the 
Mike Gravel, who was a Democratic senator from Alaska. He later, uh, in 2008, I believe, ran for president as a Democrat and then as a Libertarian in the same election after dropping out there as a Democratic thing. He did his basically a vanity party and to raise some money because he was old and poor by that point. But he, uh, for a long time, the the singular most authoritative version of the the Pentagon Papers detailing our early involvement in Vietnam that the Pentagon had lied to the U.S. about for decades uh, was out of Mike Gravel's tiny-ass subcommittee on housing and urban development or something. A a subcommittee of a HUD hearing that he did. He he gaveled it into... uh, into session in like the middle of the night because he was upset called a single witness who all they did was testify that the money sent uh, being spent on the war in vietnam could have been spent on building urban uh, housing which granted gravel the uh the the jurisdiction for his subcommittee to have this hearing and then he just read the pentagon papers into the congressional record where they couldn't be classified where anybody who contacted the Librarian of Congress could get a copy in paper form. This was the version the Pentagon Papers used to publish all the collections, all the books, all the newspapers. It was just him reading in the congressional record where they couldn't touch it, where it was, you know, protected and not under copyright and freely copyable. Right. Uh, so this, that would make a lot of sense. That is, is something, an act that he has said before that he admired. That's that is pretty extraordinary. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. I also um, I was reading speculation about things that the the House Democrats could do, like even in the event that this investigation was, uh, you know, summarily ended or hobbled, that they could simply, in the course of one of their hearings subpoena some parts of the reports and fight for them and probably have a good chance of winning. Or they could call Mueller as a witness in one of their subcommittees and ask him to summarize his findings on XYZ. Yeah, um, I I think you'd find the president asserting some form of executive privilege pretty early on in that, which would almost certainly end up going to the court. So I don't think it would be quite as easy as, you know, one, two, three, done. Right, but uh, yeah, I, I do think that's probably a, a viable path as well. And let's. This is kind of like best case scenario that nothing falls apart in the meantime. At some point, there will be a, a Democratic Department of Justice who can presumably open a file drawer and pull out that report and be like, "Nope, you guys all get to read this." Yeah, I wonder if there's a. Uh... There must be retention requirements and so forth, right? They couldn't simply actually just destroy everything. No, not at all. That that stuff gets stored and whatnot. They they could classify it, but you know, a Democratic president just declassify it. Doesn't even need to go through a process apparently, since Trump doesn't. He can just declassify things for him. That's right. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, I, I think there's a lot of a lot of options there. Um, and if they do try and pull some shit, like not retaining that data, then uh, that, that's when I think you just pull Mueller in front of the fucking cameras in your, your congressional committee and be like, tell us what you know. 
Yeah, right. So there's one other thing about Manafort that I wanted to cover quickly, which is, so there's this whole section about his interactions with uh, Konstantin Kilimnik, who is an old associate of his, but also a probable member of Russian intelligence. And also a member of our fantasy impeachment draft. <laughs> Excellent. I do wish I'd gotten in on that. There'll be, there'll be enough time in the fantasy primary, trust me. <laughs> so there's a there's a whole section about his interactions with Kilonik, and what's interesting to me is that number two there is Kilonik's role in witness tampering, basically, which is something you know that's come out in reporting that even after Manafort was under federal investigation, he was actively working to. <laughs> to shape the narratives of people who would be talking to it's just, <laughs> investigators. It's so ridiculous. I can't believe that you thought he could get away with that. And so that section is actually largely, uh, that section, that paragraph, in fact, is entirely unredacted. That's number two. There's a number one involving Kilimnik, which is heavily redacted. And since it isn't about this second thing, since it isn't about the witness tampering, is about some other kind of information coordination with Manafort. So I find that to be very interesting. All the good stuff is redacted. I'm ridiculously <laughs> upset about this. This is, this is the one that says, for instance, over the course of several interviews, Manafort lied about the fact and frequency of blank, 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 blank. Manafort falsely told investigators that after blank, blank, blank. In fact, Manafort blank. <laughs> <laughs> The um, the Manafort deal is is probably not that far away from a close, right? If they're doing these sentencing memos, then presumably they're wrapping it up, right? Yeah, yeah, I would think so. I mean, I wonder how close they thought they were to wrapping up before they realized that he was lying to them and talking to them. <laughs> <laughs> but certainly now there can't be any further value for them in continuing to talk to him. Yeah. Um, the new attorney general uh, is going to be coming in, and we're going to, I assume, see some sort of change in DOJ policy. So we'll keep on top of this one because it's probably going to switch up. Let's uh, briefly touch on our second topic we wanted to do on the mini episode, which was Comey's testimony. Uh, same question. What did we learn? You know, I actually have not been able to keep up with the news on this today, so... Oh. Okay. Um, I'll dive into it then. It was... I don't know why they chose this as, like, their 11th hour uh, testimony, but it was mostly about Hillary Clinton's email and then bias in the FBI. They specifically talked about Peter Strost, uh, who was caught sending very anti-Trump text messages. Comey points out in his testimony that Strost helped him uh, draft the letter or the statement right. that he read right before uh, the election when they announced they were reopening the investigation to Clinton's emails. So if there was some sort of bias in his work, it sure as hell didn't show there. He presumably tanked the election for Clinton. At least a lot of people think that's what uh, kind of pushed it over the edge there. 
uh, it was a lot of them talking about all the conservative, you know, hits of the last few years, the ones that they like to repeat over and over and over again, and Comey wanting to talk about obstruction of justice and things like that, and not really giving much play. It was ridiculous. Uh, it was just, we only have the text grand, uh, transcript, but, excuse me. But it was also related by a couple of Democratic members of Congress who were in the room. Uh, that was also something I gotta listen to because I actually watched NBC News this week. Uh, and it, I, from what I gather, it was just a farce. It, it's their 31st Benghazi hearing, except it's really their 28th her emails hearing. I don't know what they're, they're supposed to get. It's like when the House votes to repeal Obamacare every year for like 12 years. Yeah, they were really gung-ho on the idea of we're going to pull him in here before we're out. And like you're saying, I really don't know what they, I mean, did they think they were going to get one more, gosh, the FBI is biased story that they could kind of spit in for right-wing consumption? Because those, that's the only place these stories are actually flying. I, right-wing media sphere. I think there's a lot to that. The, uh, the White House also, and this is kind of a buried story this week, so you may not have heard about it, but the White House wanted to get um, two of Fox News's like head brass to endorse a, a certain policy they were working on. I forget which one it is now. Uh, before they went full bore on it, and they weren't they they weren't okay just not objecting to it. They had to actively endorse it because they knew that the network would then have to you know get behind it at least to a certain degree. And it really just tied into this, uh, the idea that Fox News really drives the conversation on the right in a way that you don't see an analog to on the left. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think there's a lot to that. Uh, getting the story flying in conservative media, we may never see it. But the people who like live in that ecosystem that feeds on itself and you get that feedback loop where stories grow and grow and grow, uh, they're going to be real ginned up by it. And I, I think there's a lot to that. They're trying to energize their, their people on their way out the door in kind of the last uh, way that they really can. Yeah, but I wonder what the value of that is. I mean, is it um, just more congressional cover for Trump if things get nastier? Is it whipping up the base? It's whipping up the base. The base just suffered a, a debilitating defeat. Uh, it was ridiculous. The Democrats gained 40 seats with the final count um, and possibly more because there's going to be a revote in, in North Carolina where the Republican yep. candidates paid $35,000 to a dude for him to steal the election for him. <laughs> and two sitting Republicans who are under indictment and so may <laughs> be out of there themselves soon. Yeah, it, it was a terrible election for them. There's no way to positively spin that. I mean, there's a way to be depressed if you're a Democrat. We've lost a seat or two in the Senate, but that was going to happen anyway. And we knew that, you know, two years out. So I'm, I'm not that bent out of shape about that anymore. The 40 seats in the House is ridiculous. So, yeah. They're bloodied, they're bruised, they need something to be proud of, something to distract from the bad feelings, you know. Something goes wrong in your life and, you know, you're somebody who likes to work stuff out in violence, you might, you know, punch a wall or a board or something like that. They do one of their little two minutes hate where they get a guy in a room and they get a 
hit all the conservative media talking points. And it, it gets everybody, you know, to drop the whole I'm depressed routine because they got their ass kicked in the election. Right, right. You know, they feel powerless. They, they're being swept out of the house and they get a, you know, at least go down swinging, bring Comey in and make him tell us about the text messages again. Although you would also think that they would have learned, I mean, I guess if it is primarily for this uh, outrage machine, it doesn't matter, but they would have learned that he's pretty good at outmaneuvering them, which he did, you know. At first he said, I'm not going to come. <laughs> and then basically his condition of coming at all was that if it's not going to be a public testimony, then you have to release the transcript immediately after. Now, on his way out the door as well, he took a question Um and the question was, if the Democrats want to hold hearings on obstruction or impeachment, the I word in there, would you be willing to come back? And Comey said, as long as it was public, yeah. yeah. He, he said, yeah, to the impeachment question. As long as he got to do it in, you know, in front of the cameras, in front of everybody, you know, behind closed doors bullshit, he was down. And I think that was one of the more noteworthy things in there. He's probably the first, you know, what the news media and myself like to call, you know, quote unquote, serious person who I've seen been completely down with the idea of impeachment. So that I thought was news in and of itself. Yeah, I feel like we should have a whole impeachment discussion at, <laughs> at some point. Maybe we don't want to tempt fate. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to give the entire audience impeachment blue balls, just have it never happen. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Well, I mean, I, I, I do not see a scenario in which enough Republicans in the Senate vote to convict on anything, no matter what it is. I really don't. Now, see, Nate Silver was on, and he was talking about how if that's going to happen, it's probably going to happen this year. Um, the idea being that if, if Trump is looking like a real albatross around the neck of, of Republicans and they start to feel it in a very electoral sense, um, if this looks like a, a wave on top of a wave and there's no way to get out from underneath it, um, the idea being if they can cut Trump loose you know, two years early and have two years of Pence, get everything calmed down, sets them up better for, for the election, Whereas if it gets to 2019, they, they can't cut and run at that point. It would just, it, it would make it even worse. So if you were going to see Republicans try and carry some of the weight on impeachment, it would be this year, not next. Mm. I don't know how much stock I put in that, but I think Nick Silva's a pretty smart guy. So Yeah, well, we've definitely all speculated about conditions under which the Republican Party might say... And I think we all universally think Pence would be a better candidate. <laughs> I mean, not better in the sense that he's less evil. He's not. In fact, he's probably even more. He's got that Paul Ryan thing going on where he knows how to accomplish his evil shit. Unlike Trump, who just says evil shit and then hopes other people do. Um, but, yeah, he's, to use the word again, he's a serious person, whereas Trump is not a serious person. Trump is the, the Elon Musk of, you know, gold, I guess. 
He puts gold on everything next to it. <laughs> right. That's just going to about wrap it up, though. That That is our little mini episode on the court filings and movings. We'll be back next week, and we'll talk about our new attorney general, who is, well, the attorney general we had when I was five, four, five. <laughs> That's right. He's not a new attorney general at all. <laughs> he, is, he is definitely an attorney general I have lived under before, so... <laughs> Uh, we'll we'll talk about that. There'll be some other stuff, I'm sure. Uh, and if you are a fan of soccer, watch the Timbers. We're playing our hearts out. So uh, have a good week, guys. Or, well, God. <laughs> it could still be a good week. <laughs>